0: Welcome to today's episode of the Rural Ecosystem Services podcast series, where we explore the services that Scotland's rural natural capital supplies. Today we're talking about agroforestry, and we're joined by Stephen Briggs from Abacus Agriculture. So thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. If we could just start, we could learn just a little bit more about yourself and your background.
1: Good afternoon, my name is Stephen Briggs. I'm a farmer uh, and consultant down in Cambridgeshire. My background's a bit of an interesting one in that I didn't start life as a farmer, actually first generation. I actually started life as an engineer uh, many, many years ago, but decided I didn't like working in factories. So left retrained uh, in agricultural engineering and then agriculture. I ended up doing a master's in soil science when it was deeply unfashionable about 30 years ago. And uh, couldn't get a job in anything to do with soils in this country, so I ended up working in India and Africa for people like the World Bank and FAO and DFID uh, for quite a few years doing soil and water work. Um, and then when I came back to the UK uh, with, a family, you know, with a family in the mid-1990s, um, actually fell into doing uh, agronomy consultancy work in the organic sector because organic farmers were then and are still interested in soil health and soil management. Um, so I busily, uh, sort of started working for an organization then doing part research, part agronomy, and then we all remember foot and mouth in 2001. I got made redundant at that point and decided to set my own consultancy business up at Abacus Agriculture, which I'm still doing, working with farmers all over the UK and internationally on helping them develop more resilient regenerative organic type systems. Um, so so I've been doing that for twenty five years now. my uh, back in two thousand and five, my wife and I bought twenty five acres of land in Rutland smallest county in the country, and um, uh, converted that to organic production. So at one point, we were the, the biggest organic producers in the smallest county <laughs> in, in Rutland. Uh, we've, been, we've been farming that, and that enabled us to get some gain some credibility to obtain a tenancy, which we did in 19, uh, 2007, uh, from a, a 15-year farm business tenancy from... Uh, Cambridge County Council local authority. So, we've been farming since 2007, a 105 hectare holding plus the bit of land we own. Um, and uh, that's that's how we started, really, as is, is new, new entrance uh, into the world of farming.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic, and that's uh, some backstory, quite diverse, how it's evolved. It's it's a it's a potted history, I should say. Alongside
1: the day job of uh, running the farm and um, and the consultancy business, I'm I'm also head of head of technical and soils for the Royal Agricultural Society, and, and also a, a non-exec director of uh, AHDB, the Agriculture and Horticultural Development Board. So I, I like to keep busy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely sounds it. Um so you're here today to talk about the your own farm that you've mentioned and your background with agroforestry and growing trees on your land so there's a lot of different types of agroforestry. could you just give us some information on what you are doing
1: sure so and it probably helps to put it in context as well I think when we moved on to the farm in two thousand and seven, the farm had been yeah you know, it, was, it was an all arable farm have been growing wheat oilseed rape um sugar beet and potatoes for m- maybe 40 years and and the soils were absolutely exhausted you know he- heavy cultivations lots of uh, bag fertilizer and pesticides and um the soils were pretty exhausted and and it became apparent very quickly that the um the soils were prone to a lot of erosion so we have a mixture of heavy clay and and some edge peat soils and the peat soils were eroding from wind erosion really rapidly and the clays or what I would call one minute clays you know one minute they were porridge and the next minute they were concrete uh, and, uh, and 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 it was pretty tough to farm them so we wanted to change our farm from just being really commodity growing to Trying to add value and do things that that added some sort of environmental benefits at the same time, as well as sort of you know overall resilience for climate change, etc. So we, we we converted the farm to organic pretty much straight away, um, and uh, I wanted to do something about addressing the issues around wind erosion. So I thought back to some of my time working in, actually in East Africa, where I'd been exposed to some agroforestry. And I sort of thought, I wonder if this would work in a, in a Cambridgeshire temperate environment. So did quite a bit of research, um, was very lucky to be awarded a Nuffield Farming Scholarship. We so traveled globally looking at um, agroforestry in North America, in all over Europe, Australasia, New Zealand, and then a lot of time in China. Um, and um, came home and, and actually put in a 125-acre, 52-hectare agroforestry system mm-hmm. based on, a, on on an alley-cropping silver arable system. So uh, if you can imagine a large open field, what we've done is we've put lines of trees every 27 metres, so single lines of trees every 27 metres, with a three-metre understory uh, strip of pollen and nectar uh, leaving a 24-meter working alley um, uh, between between the rows of trees. Now, all the trees that we, we... We looked at lots of different types of trees, but in the end decided to opt for growing fruit trees, uh, mainly because we're tenants and we needed an economic return within 15 years of our tenancy. And also, we, you know, we, we, well, we couldn't wait for hardwoods or nut trees or whatever to produce because we didn't have the, the, the um, security of tenure. Um, but also at the time when we did this, uh, fruit trees were were also an eligible crop under the Common Agricultural Policy. And if we planted a timber tree at that time, we would have We would have had a sort of dilapidations claim against us from the landlord of taking land out of agricultural production. so there are there are a couple of competing forces which led led us down that route. so we we planted thirteen varieties of apple trees, four and a half thousand trees altogether back in two thousand and nine, on these sort of single lines. Uh, with a 24 meter alley in between, and they're all plain, planted in a sort of north south orientation, the lines of trees, um, so the sun comes up in the east, down in the west, and you don't you know, get that sort of shading you do under the edge of a woodland. Uh, and uh, that all worked uh, pretty well. You know, it, it allows us to use modern farm machinery. Um, it actually has lent itself to developing a controlled traffic farming system, so all our all our machinery is six meters. So we cultivate with the six metre cultivators, we, we sow with six metre drills, we, uh, we, we we actually plant everything now on a on a wide twenty two centimetre row with all our cereals and use a, a garford robo crop interrow hoe and actually inter row everything and under plant it with clovers. Um, so we've got very much a sort of three dimensional sort of farming system. Um, so all, all our machinery and even the combines six meters as well so that works well and i guess one of the drivers for me was thinking about solar panels in the uh, as farmers really our only our only real input is sunlight yeah sunlight and water you know, and a bit of carbon dioxide um and as a cereal farmer come the end of july beginning of august we turn the solar panels off we're just waiting for crops to dry in the field and and not building carbon from photosynthesis at the time of year when there's maximum solar radiation. So having trees in the mix means we've got perennials and annuals. And perennials are having to, sorry annuals are having to start from scratch, a seed every year. And you throw the seed into the roulette wheel. You don't know if it's going to be wet or, or dry or cold or hot. The perennials have got, you know, they don't have that, that same risk factor. To um, so mixing the perennials and the annuals, and also the fact that actually I can make the farm bigger by farming three-dimensionally. All the space above and all the space below, deep in the soils, is is free. I get charge rent on a per acre basis, per hectare basis, but if I can farm in a three-dimensional hectare or acre then that actually doesn't cost me any more and i've got more space
0: yeah that makes sense doesn't it
1: uh, and the, the secret yeah the secret is really about um trying to have the two components that don't compete in the same space and also the same time period
0: yeah so you're really maximizing the the space that you've got as well
1: exactly um it, it, it you know it obviously challenges Normal thinking, but but actually we found that it works really well because the the cereals are photosynthesizing and growing between you know October November through to June July, and the the, the fruit trees don't even start until April May and they carry on till November, so there's a real real overlap in terms of when they're using nutrients and water and and sunlight.
0: So at this start when we were talking about it, you said that one of the drivers for choosing agroforestry was soil and protecting from wind erosion
1: yeah so one of the one of the sort of primary thought processes was, was trying to use the trees as as buffers uh against some of the soil erosion so by reducing wind speed but but not only did i, I want buffers uh wind breaks, you might call them uh which could do that but they they had to make me money of course i, yeah. I, I i've got rent to pay <laughs> um, so, so that's an important consideration, uh, and also we wanted them to improve the sort of biodiversity and habitat levels on the farm. So there were there were, there were lots of lots of things there that we um, we you know parts of the jigsaw we wanted to sort of squeeze together. And one of the things we did do right at the beginning, uh, because my, I have an inquisitive mind, was yeah. we benchmarked the farm for sort of soil quality farmland birds, invertebrates, insects, etc. And then they've been working with universities ever since through MSC, PhD, undergrad projects to actually do some of the monitoring. And you know, we've seen the agroforestry is, is delivering everything we want. It's reducing wind speed, it's improving soil quality, it's you know, the soils have massively changed from being bacterial dominated to now very fungal dominated lots of mycorrhizal fungi which we, we can we can track with the um, with the research that we've been looking at and we've seen sort of a 10 times species richness improvement in biodiversity uh, 200% more bumblebees and 400% more pollinating insects and you know so so the research and the stuff that's gone into uh, published journals has 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 proven that which is great so it's delivering on biodiversity and it's delivering on on the sort of soil protection bit, it's also making us more money. <laughs> so, which is so we we grow the cereals we grow as a, as a, as a in between the trees, we grow as a, uh, an organic cereal, but also as a gluten free certified cereal. So, we're, we're really sort of trying to get as much productivity out of that. But then the, the, the trees themselves, which took five years to come into fruit production, we then take the apples and either sell them direct. Uh, or um, or juice them and sell fruit juice. So we sell about five thousand bottles of fruit juice a year. So we're actually adding value to that produce as well.
0: Yeah, that, that yeah, that sounds pretty fantastic. That was you've answered one of the questions I was going to ask about benchmarking and like baseline and seeing the species that you had before you started and the soil quality.
1: Yeah, it's, or too often, you know, uh, we, we, as farmers, we sort of go down a road and you know, it's only sort of a few years down and you think, well, this is doing some good, but I can't remember what it was like or well, I've got nothing to compare it against at the beginning.
0: Yeah. I was quite, good, sure, yeah.
1: quite sure to do that before, when we started um, and it gives us something to measure against
0: and have you any you're doing quite a lot have you any plans to for the future to increase what you're doing more habitats or when we started
1: the farm in round numbers is sort of 100 hectares or thereabouts and um, we put roughly half the farm 52 hectares into agroforestry uh, and of that, of that 52 hectares only only four hectares is actually occupied by these understory pollen nectar strips with the trees in so it's only eight percent of the land area four hectares four and a half thousand trees on, on 52 it's only eight percent so 92 percent still doing what it was doing before we planted that 52 hectares that's now 13 years old People say, well, why don't you do the other half of the farm? Um, it was never intended to be a research project. It was a commercial activity. We actually sent quite a bit of money into building a farm shop and retail business. Um, so uh, we, we opened Harvest Barn Farm Shop about uh, four years ago. Two years of that's been in COVID. So it's been a fairly bumpy ride. you um, can
0: imagine. <laughs> uh,
1: so we, we, you know, we've, we've diversified the business in so many ways. But by opening the shop, that gives us a retail outlet and, and direct access to customers. And, and actually, I didn't expect to have half fun with agroforestry and half without. But I think I'm going to keep it like that, partly because about with tenancy and, uh, and return on investment. But actually, it gives us a really nice uh, with and without type comparison.
0: Yeah, and it kind of lends itself. I know you said you don't want it to be a research farm, but it does lend itself to show the before and after and what the differences you can make versus keeping it as is.
1: Well, it, it came home to us, well, we've had, say a lot of these researchers have come through and uh, looking at stuff on the farm, and they quite often do transacts and measurements on areas without the agroforestry managed organically, and then... The agroforestry that's managed organically, and then with a neighbour over the road under a conventional system, and it's just like walking up three steps in terms of yeah. soil quality, um, you know, biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera.
0: And when you were first implementing the uh, the trees, what was the process? If so, if somebody else wanted to kind of replicate what you've done, what what would be the first steps that they would have to take?
1: Well, I, I guess the first thing one needs to think about is what you know. What are what are the objectives? What are we trying to do on the farm? Is it is it increasing biodiversity? Is it increasing so you know soil protection or water protection? Are there particular issues, um, or is or is it resilience? You know, uh, is it trying to get near markets and add value? Um, is it is it trying to you know, improve the ecology of the of the setting? You know, what are the main drivers those are the first things to, to decide and then and then timescales you know if you're a landowner uh, that is planting trees for the next generation and you can wait 25 50 years for an economic return then fine but you know if if you need an economic return much quicker so these these parts of the jigsaw sort of need to be uh, defining objectives is the first thing um, and then then it's really then about suitability of species um uh, of different different tree or shrub it doesn't have to be a tree can be can be a shrub uh tree tree types um and then researching sort of markets no point in putting anything in the ground if there isn't a the market for it
0: yeah so there's a lot more work to do than just going out and starting to plant it needs to be a, the reasons behind it and
1: exactly and then, and then even when you get to the end of that process uh, you've got to work out what's commercially available <laughs> you know, so uh, uh, you know what what I was chatting to some foresters say, a couple of weeks ago you know as farmers, we think in uh, gestation cycles for livestock or or seasonal cycles or rotations of of crops well foresters think in fifty year cycles. Uh, they, you know, they, as one professor said to me, you can hide your mistakes really well, really well, because it's the end. Of, you know that you're f- you thinking careers. <laughs> and that's, if you make a mistake, that's somebody else's problem. Uh, um, but uh, with climate change, especially, what may be suitable today might not be suitable in twenty, thirty, forty years' time.
0: Yep, you need to kind of plan for the future as well as planning for what works now.
1: E- exactly, uh, and then there's all the. All the legislation one needs to think about as well in terms of how things fit into you know, the devolved regions' uh, domestic agricultural policies. You know, it was in some ways it was easier under the Common Agricultural Policy because we're all under one program, but now we're developing our own domestic policies at uh, um, you know country levels. Uh, agroforestry is, is starting to feature in quite a lot of those country programs. I know, you know, south of the border, down here in England, agroforestry will feature as part of Elms and the Sustainable Farming Incentive, which is which is great because you know a decade ago, you went to talk to Defra and they said, "Oh no, no trees." That's Forestry Commission, and then you went to talk to the Forestry Commission, they said, "Agroforestry, no, that, that's farming," <laughs> and and no nobody was taking any ownership, but that's really changed. Um, and there's a lot more interest and a lot more recognition that you know trees have a role in terms of carbon and biodiversity and cycling uh, carbon dioxide. You know, they're the lungs of the planet. And if we want trees, we 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 want we want we're probably going to have to have some trees in an agricultural
0: context. And, yeah, um, I think you've shown that the benefits that they can provide in an agricultural. Concepts.
1: There's a a few surprises for us actually. Um, uh, One, one I guess I'd underestimated the value of trees for livestock, and we don't really have any livestock here. We've got we've got sort of some sheep and some goats and stuff, poultry on the farm for our farm shop, people to sort of look at. But but actually, for ruminant livestock, the value of trees and shrubs and hedges for that matter, in terms of their nutrition and for shelter and shade is massively important. And as climate change, you know, with wetter winters and warmer summers, as, as that comes, that's going to be more and more important. And we've also seen in our own system where we've got, if you, if, if listeners can sort of, if you can think about these sort of lines of trees, which are um, you know, now 13 years old, they're about four or five metres high, they're they're sort of three meters. I got a three meters sort of a crown uh, of the sort of canopy of the tree, and the stems are I don't know, probably um, uh, two hundred diameters, something like that, a bit more. Uh, with the twenty four meters in between the tree the lines of trees, I always thought that the, the the crop in the middle of the alley would be the you know the bigger crop, and we'd have a sort of drop off at the edges on the shoulders of these alleys we're actually now seeing completely the reverse. We're seeing more crop in the sort of 6 to 12 meters adjacent to the trees than we see in the middle, which goes against all my sort of frequency pes- wisdom. Uh, and I think that's a mixture of better drainage in the winter and probably uh, some wind protection and a moisture conservation in, in, in the middle of summer. And we definitely know that there's higher mycorrhizal levels uh, you know, in those sort of regions adjacent to the trees. They, all those things combining means that we're seeing better crop at the edges. And I'm the one that sits on the combine and I'm the one that has to tilt the header on the combine to accommodate that changing crop height. So, so, so it's it's definitely there.
0: Yeah. Well, that brings me on to like the next question where I was going to ask about lessons lear- learned in the process. Would you do anything different?
1: Yeah, there are a few interesting ones. Um, and we were complete novices when we did this, you know, we, we, we lots of back of the envelope calculations. And I think we got it about right. Um, but I would have definitely spent more money on better quality hardwood posts uh, when we put the trees in because the the sort of softwood treated softwood was basically rubbish. And after three years, half the posts had broken. Um we, we had, we put wire mesh guards around the trees when we started. The hares we have on the farm are as big as Labradors and we had to go and put bigger mesh guards on because the hares were nibbling the, you know, these trees are big now, but when they went in they were one year old sort of whips and they were quite, quite small. And also the trees came. So the trees came with a sorry, we planted with a post and a, and a, and a guard and a, um, and a tie. And we we were advised for weed control to put a, a membrane underneath them. Uh, not being an organic farm, we couldn't spray around the base of the trees. So we put a, a, a geotextile sort of one meter square, which worked wor really well, really well. We uh, the weeds down, but you know, ten years later, that's now a nice little warm, dry environment for voles. Ah. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so we lost a few trees to to voles eating the root balls out and, and the more annoying thing is when you mow under the trees once a year it's very good at wrapping itself around the bearings on the mower which is a just a bit of a pain so i they, they did their job but they're a bit of a pain on the plus side of having all the voles we're actually overrun with barn barnhouse oh. so, so the resultant factor is the battle the uh, the guy that, comes and does all our barn owl ringing for us. We've got five barn owl boxes on 100 hectares. I mean, last year we fledged 13 barn owl chicks.
0: That's fantastic, isn't
1: it? So, so there are pluses and minuses, you know, and there's a balance. Uh, and the other lesson we learned when we put these trees in, we hadn't quite appreciated we were creating four and a half thousand roosting places for pigeons. <laughs> Uh, which was fine when one pigeon comes and lands on your one year old tree you know and perches on the top of it, but when t- two of its mates come and give it company and and you end up with a thousand trees being damaged you know by the by the top of the tree being snapped out it 's a bit of a nightmare so we, we we solved it by actually going back and putting a uh sort of three meter bamboo cane um four and a half thousand bamboo canes went back in and put those in against the trees. And then the, the pigeons landed on top of the bamboo cane.
0: Oh, right. Okay. So you're kind of just diverting them to the, the cane. Oh. Uh,
1: and, and, and obviously, you know, the odd rabbit on a feeding platform brings in the raptors and then the raptors control them as well but yeah. um yeah that's not a problem now because the trees are big enough but it was certainly a problem in the first couple of years
0: yeah well that's some good um hints and tips especially with the 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 pigeons that would be quite painful to but i mean four and a half thousand bamboo canes into trees that how long did that take
1: you <laughs> a couple of mornings <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, everything. Uh, yeah, and then there are other things. So you know, one thing we found is that the 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 pollen nectar strips that we planted with about thirteen different species under the trees, they 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 constantly change. So year one to three, it's with some species, and then other species take over, and other species take over. They now they now sort of grass strips with pollen. Uh, a nectar species in them. So it's for grass with clover in now, pretty much. Whereas there was a lot of oxide daisies and campions and sandfoins and all sorts in there before. And some of that survived and some of that
0: hasn't. And when, how often do you do your biodiversity audits or your species? Is that the.
1: Just ongoing. So you know, there's on. a constant, we have, we have a constant sort of flow of research students coming through the farm and get those to do them. But the, the bird audits are done. As we're on a three-year cycle.
0: Oh, well, that's great. Thank you. I think we have covered um, quite a lot on this topic, so thank you for coming to speak to us today.
1: I mean, the, the, if if people are interested in agroforestry, there are there are a couple of things I would direct them to. Yeah. Because I think it's useful. Um, there is in the in uh, UK there's something called the Farm Woodland Forum, which is a, a very low-key membership organisation, um, which people can. Who have an interest in trees on farms can get involved with. There's also um, a European Agroforestry Federation, uh, which uh, I helped set up after too many bottles of wine in a restaurant in Paris back in two thousand ten eleven, uh, and uh, uh, and that was quite formative actually because because that started with just sort of three countries and now it's twenty four European countries and a fair few hundred. Members, so there's a, there's a great sort of groundswell of uh, uh, information, but also you know um, interest in agroforestry, um, and you know I, I never envisaged back then. You know I, I stood up in the parliament in Brussels in 2012 with a, an Irishman and a, a Greek gentleman. I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere, but um, uh, we stood up and lobbied for change under the Common Agricultural Policy and got a change. We have got the 50 trees per hectare limit moved to 100 trees per hectare, uh, so you can plant up to any species of 100 trees per hectare across Europe on agricultural land, and it remains agricultural; it doesn't become forestry. And that's a, that's a great benefit, really, for um, uh, for pushing agroforestry forward.
0: Okay, well, thank you for for doing standing up in the Parliament and getting that done.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think they let us back in now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we get a day pass to go into the EU Parliament anymore.
0: Well, thanks again for coming on and, and, and talking.
1: It's a pleasure, and uh, I, hope, uh, I hope it's of interest to, to listeners.
0: Definitely. Thank you.
1: Okay. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye.
0: If you would like to find out more about what we've talked about today, go to sruc.ac.uk forward slash exploring ecosystem services.